Well, that put me in the mood. <laughs> Doesn't take much these days. Hi, Mike. How are um, you? I am wonderful, and I'm so happy to meet you. Uh, this is Game Changers with me, Vicki Abelson, and my guest today is piano man Mike Garson, who I have seen on stage dating back 44 years, I want to say. Is that right? Um, anyway, it's a ridiculous amount. No, 47 years ago. A crazy amount of time ago, Mike, you were a baby. Um, and I want to talk about that because I've done a lot of reading about you, a lot of listening to you. I, I know you grew up in Brooklyn, but how did this whole piano, did you, did you play out of the womb? I mean, were you a child prodigy? You had to be, you play like crazy. Where did this start for you? You know, in most houses in Brooklyn, there was a piano, you know, and my mom played, my dad played and my sister played. So it was sort of built-in peer pressure and i started <laughs> lessons at seven which seemed young but i've seen a lot of talented people who started at three four and five and you even have an edge when you're able to start that young i've started uh my one of my grandsons on drums at two so oh I, the earlier the better because it's something about the absorption and the cellular memory and just being part of it but seven was good. And by the time I was, you know, nine or 10, I was getting pretty good by 12. I started doing concerts and uh, 14 started working professionally. In fact, at the, in the Catskill Mountains, upstate New York, where you really get the ultimate training because every night there's a different singer. So I must have played over a six or seven year period for 800 singers from the worst the worst to to the best. Mel Tomei being at the top and Gregory Hines with his family, they danced and sang and- uh, Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet, did you play with them up there? They were at uh, the Concord when right. I was at Raleigh, so huh. I didn't play with them, but I know them of course. And uh, yeah, so, so I you, got- How did you do that, Mike, at 14? How were you able to get a gig like that at 14? In, in, in the place where the Rose Bowl, uh, in the Roseland, New York City, right. where the, the union used, the musician union used to be able to congregate at Roseland in Manhattan every Wednesday at two to five. And there'd be thousands of musicians in there and people on a microphone saying, piano player needed for this bar mitzvah, someone needed for the Catskills for this weekend. And they'd sell sheet music of the newest song that came out. This is in, you know, 61, 60, 62. And I go right. there and I got work and they'd say, we need a, a, a quartet to play in the summer in the Catskills for $40 a week. And, and I would take it. And, and these band leaders would, hi, would hire you, even though you were just this little Pisher kid who, because they, they based it on what you could play, obviously. One of the band leaders, um, it must have been 60 or 70 at the time, and he played the accordion, and I was <laughs> 14, 15, and we had saxophone, and we had drums and bass. In fact, the sax player is still a close friend of mine. His name wow. is Dave. Dave Liebman, uh, he, he played with Miles Davis. When I went off with David Bowie in 72, he went off with Miles Davis. And we went to the same high school, but we got the same kind of training because you're reading music every night. 
you're playing for a dance team, you're playing for a singer. So you get a lot of experience that way. Plus I had private lessons from the best teachers in the world. In the New York on the jazz scene in the 60s, I got to study with Herbie Hancock, Bill Evans, uh, Lenny Tristano, um, Chick Corea. I mean, that, that lucky. How, how did you get to study with Herbie Hancock and Chick Corea? How can that possibly happen? They're Herbie teaching? Came, Herbie came to see uh, me playing in the Catskills. He was friends with the drummer who was a, lived in his building, who was Bob Moses, another jazz drummer. And I w went up to him. I said, could I get a couple of lessons? He said, sure. So I went up to his house on Riverside Drive. Bill Evans was playing in the Village Vanguard. I went up to him. I said, can I have a lesson, Bill? I'm very serious about music. He gave me a six-hour free lesson. I studied with wow. a, a blind pianist named Lenny Tristano for three years. He played with Charlie Parker, a very good teacher. And another guy who did arrangements for Thelonious Monk named Hal Overton. So, you know, and earlier than that, I had a Juilliard teacher who lived next door to my house in Brooklyn. So I didn't even have to go to Juilliard. I just walked 30 yards over to his house. <laughs> And how did you, I mean, up there, I mean, my father sang all those jazz standards. How, as a 14-year-old kid, did you know all those? So did improvisation, is that how improvisation came into your music? Because you couldn't possibly have known all those songs you were playing. Or were you a great reader at the beginning? How did, how did you do it? Well, I was a very good reader, and I would memorize another standard every day. So at that part of my life, by the time I was 16 and 17, I knew about a thousand standards Wow. And um, now I maybe remember 50 or 100 of them, but I knew them then. And then if I didn't know them, I would read them, you know, because I was a very good reader because I played classical music. So reading a sheet music for pop stuff was nothing, you know. And right. If you learn how to read chords when you're young um, and, and you understand how to play them on the piano and voice them and spread them out and all that, that's one of the keys into improvisation. And improvisation was fascinating to me, but it reminded me of life and how things unfold spontaneously. But I made a study of it because it's, it sounds sometimes random to people, but it's actually quite controlled if you've done your homework. You know, I, I probably, a lot of people don't know this, but I think I've played the piano over 150,000 hours. So, Wow. They say it takes 10,000 hours to make a master in a subject, you know. So think about that. You know, I mean, that's all I've done since I'm 14. A lot of people had to, for survival purposes, do day gigs, do this, do that. I've been blessed that I, it's always been music. There, there for sure were times when I wasn't working because the graph of a musician is up and down and you might be employed one day and the next day you're not self-employed, you're unemployed. So <laughs> yeah. it, it, there was a time after I toured with David the first time from 72 to 74, I had no work 75 and 76. And then people wow. thought I was still with him. So nobody was calling me. Wow. You're virtually starting all over. Yeah. So you didn't have to do any day jobs. You, did you have day jobs then when you were in that period? You didn't have to do day jobs. I started teaching piano when I was 17 or 16. So wow. I also have taught piano over 10,000 students my whole life. I still teach. I love teaching. 
And uh, so I was a natural teaching. With piano, I was natural, but I'm even more natural as, as a teacher. But And it came to me naturally, whereas the piano playing, I practiced my head off many days, four, six, eight hours a day. And I still do, you know, I still practice, you know. Um, well, that shows. Do, do, so you're saying that improvisation is something that can be that you can be learned. The basis of improvisation. Yeah, you you can learn it. You may or may not be great at it. This first, you have the natural gift, which is I don't know, God given or mm -hmm. whatever you're endowed with. You know, and some people have let's say that it factor and mm -hmm. has it and dylan john lennon you know uh, oscar peterson on tatum bill evans keith jarrett career mccoy tyler john coltrane miles <laughs> certain people have it mm -hmm. and 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 then the hard work starts so you can learn quite a bit about improvisation and you can learn quite a bit about rhythm rhythm harmony and melody are the elements of music so you learn all three of those aspects and you learn how to put them together by learning scales and chords. You can start to learn how to improvise. I have students in the first lesson where I show them just a C scale and I have them improvising the first week because wow. I, I have figured out how to break it down. Whether, as I said a minute ago, whether they turn out great, that depends on part one, what their natural endowment is, but anyone could be taught it. And depending on how many hours you're willing to put into it, it's not natural uh, if you're a classical pianist like I was to improvise. But when I heard Dave Brubeck and Andre Previn and Coltrane, I thought, that's fascinating. I want to learn how to do that. So I would ask a lot of musicians when I was 14 and 15, and they said, if you don't feel it, you're out of luck. That made sense 50 years later because uh -huh. I feel it now. Then it didn't make sense. And I knew these people were not being honest. So I found teachers that were willing to break the code and teach me because it's like a code. Uh, and, and that's why it's mysterious to people. And there's so many levels of improvisation and, and it can be broken down and taught, but somebody has to really be willing to, it's not something that you do superficially, you know, I can show right. superficially how the idea of it, but if one wants to really dig in deep, uh, it's, it's, I'm still figuring it out. But, and you, you're such a master at it that you were able to do that on stage with Bowie. He trusted you enough that from what I have heard you say, you could do it differently every night. And he was okay with that. David was the most unusual singer of the eight or nine hundred singers or thousand I played for by far in that he he gave me a lot of space. It wasn't I'm his accompanist and he's the singer. We co-created together. We were a duet and there was I could feel in my fingers him and I could feel his pulse and his beat and his heart. And I was the loose canon in the band in that everyone else played their parts a little improv a little this little that but essentially they're playing the meat and potatoes of the song right he because the infrastructure was there of the bass and the drums and 
at the Toff and Mick Ronson and Woody and Trevor and the Spiders in those days. <laughs> that infrastructure allowed me to be free. And I played with 10 or 12 different bands with David over, um, let's say, over the 40 year span on and off. So I, every band I played with, he gave me that freedom to be who I wanted to be. And he only asked that I brought him in at the beginning of the song. So he got into the key right and I ended the song relatively like the records. But for the most part, um, he really let me be, which most singers will not let you do. They micromanage and they want to control you. He right. gave me freedom, which is why I lasted more than the first eight weeks that I was only originally hired for. So tell that story. How did you come to get the gig? Um, I was given a piano lesson in Brooklyn, 1972. My daughter at the time was one. My wife was working. And the phone rings. And it was Bowie's manager, actually. And they said... How, how did he come to call you? David had run into Annette Peacock. Annette Peacock was an avant-garde singer on the New York scene, and David knew of her. Coincidentally, I had played on her record a few months earlier, because I was playing kind of wacko avant-garde music, and, and she was really out there, but very creative. So David, when he came to New York, don't know why he didn't bring a piano player, because if you're doing songs like Changes and Life on Margin, you need piano. So he didn't bring a pianist, and he asked her, she recommended me, the manager called me, and I said, well, I'm giving a piano lesson. So, well, if you could be here in 20 minutes, you have a chance to audition for David Bowie. So I, I don't know who David Bowie is. <laughs> and you can feel David in the background hearing this thinking, this is good, I want this guy. <laughs> so I left my daughter with my piano student. It was his first lesson. My wife wanted to kill me when she came home. I'm not there. And there's this, my daughter is sort of swinging in a, a swing next to the piano. And this <laughs> little guy is watching her who I had just met who could have kidnapped oh her. Oh, my God. And my, my wife still brings it up to this day, you know. <laughs> How could you do that? Anyway, I played eight bars of changes for, for um, Mick Ronson. I played... Uh, it he said you got the gig okay, I said, come, what Nick I didn't start playing he said I played the piano I know you can do it wow that was the audition your eight bars of changes was your audition what I just played now was longer I never even got to the rhythm part wow wow I was saying before we went on the air that I always said that I wanted the Clued haircut and it is actually the Mick Ronson haircut. I, Jane Fonda definitely got it from him. Um, you played a lot with Mick Ronson as well. Well, we'll get to that. So when I saw you guys, 74, it was the Diamond Dogs tour. Um, we'll talk about, uh, um, well, let's talk about that because it was very different for David because he did come out in a trench coat and a top hat and, and, and a hat and looking, he didn't have the orange hair, you know, he. He looked very different. There were catwalks. There was a cherry picker. He came out and did Space Oddity. It was wild. How did it go from 
That was not your first tour with him, though. You did Ziggy Stardust, right? Right. Okay. So was that that? I assume that was your first rock tour. The Ziggy one was my first big one. I had played with a rock band called Brethren a few years earlier. We used to open for Joe Cocker, and I oh. took, took over Dr. John's job. But the band never quite made it. The drummer was great, Rick Murata, became mm. famous. But this was the big time with, with David and the Diamond Dogs tour um, was by far the most expensive tour probably anyone had done up to date. And, uh, you know, that thing with the cherry picker up in, It was crazy. And he's in this little <laughs> base that got stuck in a few cities where he literally was panicked and he had to get out of it and walk across sort of parts of the balcony very nervously. Oh my God. Yeah. So a lot of people don't know about that. And that David told me one of his only regrets, he, he was very efficient about filming every tour and videoing and recording everything. That one didn't get done that way. Maybe somebody has it somewhere. Wow. And that was the most uh, impressive. It was a Broadway show. It was. Rock elements. In fact, the band, uh, Michael Kamen was the musical director at the time. I was playing piano, he was playing synthesizers. Uh, the band was unhappy because we were placed underneath the stage like a pit band on a Broadway show. And that didn't feel like a rock band to us, but David had a different vision. Right. As you said, what happened is we did this tour from the East Coast to the West Coast, literally ran out of money so we came back with a whole different group on the Young Americans tour where I opened the show called the Gawson Band and Luther Vandross was singing and Dave Sanborn was playing Carlos Alomar and we switched drummers and bass players, Dennis Davis played drums and it became this funk band uh, and we came back from California back to New York. So we went one direction with an English rock band with uh, Tony Newman and Herbie Flowers on drums and bass. We came back with Carlos and, and on, on Dennis David, which was a fantastic drummer, and Amir Kassan was the bass player, Dave Samboy. But Dave was with us. Some were with us on both parts of the tour. But so was, how, how did it then get billed for the second, second part of that tour, um, David Bowie with the Mike Arson band? How did was, that happen? It was actually David Bowie. And the Garson band. So we, op band. we opened the show for him. Again, he gave me ulti ul ultimate freedom. I played jazz songs. I played Latin music. We did soul music. Uh, some of the audience was really pissed off because they're <laughs> waiting for David. And I'm playing this bizarre <laughs> music. <laughs> we were playing the Spectrum in Philadelphia. And at, on that tour, we had a white rug on, on the stage. It was white rug, the whole stage beautiful furry rope and I see flying through the air an egg and it lands on and breaks the yolk comes out the yellow comes out right between me and Luther you know because <laughs> I get the fuck off the stage you know David's we want David you know so it wasn't easy but leave it to David he had a vision unfortunately it was never recorded properly so there's only some cassettes of the Gawson band that you could barely make it out but wow. 
we led into uh, his show and he came out. And of course, it was a phenomenal show. You know? What a show. And from what I recall, when he started singing Space Oddity, we didn't even know where he was because he wasn't on the stage. Right. And all of a sudden we're hearing him sing and he's above our head. I mean, that was incredible. That had never been done before. That was amazing. I mean, they're talking Renaissance man and not your typical rock musician. There aren't too many <laughs> interviews you're going to do or singers that I'm going to play with who were David Bowie. You know, this guy, we will know of him in 500 years and we'll know of him in 5,000 years. I mean, he's Absolutely. not fly by night because he was much more than a rock musician, you know. So that's all I know, I mean, right now. So you were with him for so many years, personally, um, because he he seems so ethereal, eccentric. How? What was your relationship like personally? It was down to earth, just like us talking now. There was no difference. He had a great sense of humor. He was extremely well read. So sometimes we couldn't follow him. We'd talk about painters and artists. I don't know what he was talking about. <laughs> Reading philosophy books. I mean, he was a sponge. So he he really uh, understood life and people and. Uh, it all ended up in his songs and in his lyrics and his performance. Um, I wished I could have appreciated it a little more at the time. You, when you're somebody's pianist, you're there to support. So I'm just thinking about playing the right notes and happy to get through the gig and supportive. It's nerve wracking when you look out there and there's 100,000 people. But I, so I couldn't appreciate like you could or a fan in the audience. However, on the Ziggy Stardust tour, what the first American tour, I didn't play every song. So there were certain songs like With of a Circle and Hang On To Yourself, where just the spiders were playing, I would sneak out into the audience because those weren't even sold out shows. And wow. I'd, I'd sit in the first row and watch him. And I thought to myself, this guy is amazing. But I actually go watch the show. Uh, for two or three songs and run backstage. I mean, David never knew that, but that's what I was watching the show. Wow. What was the, when you were, I mean, when you were growing up, did the Beatles have an impact on you the way they did to most of us or no? I don't think I knew of them until they broke up. I mean, I was practicing the piano. Wow. So I, what, what, so you weren't listening to music at all other than you were playing music. You weren't I, listening? I listening to classical. And a little jazz. And so I, to this day, I don't know much about rock and roll. David said the ultimate statement in the newspapers in London in 73, the, the top of the page said, Mike Arson is the best rock pianist in the world because he doesn't play rock. <laughs> <They have it>. <laughs> <laughs> That's hysterical. Do you appreciate, do you like rock music? Do you like to listen to it now? I don't usually listen to it, but some yeah. things I like. Some things I like very much. So yeah. I mean, because you've played with the nine inch nails and smashing pumpkins. I mean, you've played I don't, I still don't understand. <laughs> or understand. I don't know why those guys want me or like me. I just played on a Duran Duran new album, a Def Leppard album. I just played on a track for Trent Reznor that he produced for Halsey. Uh and I, I don't get it. You know what I mean? I spent my whole life composing, writing classical music, playing jazz, 
and the rockers keep calling it. So it, does jazz speak more to your heart? Does classical, do those speak more to your heart? Mm -hmm. They do. Can you play us something that speaks to your heart off the top of your head? Anything that moves you right now? I could write something in the moment because what I am is an improvising pianist. That's what I've been doing for 60 years. So I just play how I feel in the moment based on the audience and the people there in the space. So I could try to do something like that. I because would love that. I don't, I don't play classical pieces by Chopin or Mozart or Bach. Right. Anymore, but, uh, I just play how I feel in any given moment. Otherwise, I'm sort of not the right person for the gig. So I can oh. do that. Like, you're the right person for this gig because I love that. And whatever moves you, uh, I'm excited to hear. I don't know any more than you till it comes out, okay. right? Okay. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. I have been listening to you all day and I've been so moved. Um, your variations on Bowie. Um, was that it was that all improvised? It was all improvised. So I don't know those pieces because I only played them once. Wow. Just like I did now. It just so happens this one I made up from scratch. In those cases, I took a Bowie song and improvised on them. I'll do that. Uh, Be before we go, I want you to do- Last you thing do I do, I'll, I'll play Space Oddity oh. in, a, in a new variation. Oh. I, don't, I don't know the old variation, but so I'll play a new version for you. I would love that. Okay, so I also saw Glass the Glass Spider tour, which was another like huge extravaganza with choreography and all, all kinds of craziness. and. Um, how 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 was it for you to grow with David? You know, initially he was being another character as he sang in the Ziggy period, right? Mm -hmm. Latin saying Thin White Duke. But when I rejoined him in the 90s till the end of the last tour, when did his last tour with him, which ended in 2004 we were out on the road for 13 months. He was just 
coming out as a normal guy singing his music, both mm. new stuff and old stuff. And he didn't have to hide behind a character. He hid behind those characters early on because he was scared and nervous. And he wow. was brilliant as an artist that worked. But now he is, he's married to Mon and has a daughter and all this kind of stuff. It was, it was much more simple and relaxed. And his voice was lower because he was older, but it was actually richer. Mm -hmm. So I very much enjoyed playing with him in the 90s and the 2000s. It's just I, that people only know him for the most part from the Ziggy period because that's the biggest impact right? Uh, because of the zeitgeist of the time. But the, people will be discovering many phases of his music as the uh, years go on. Absolutely. Um, I, I heard today that when Aladdin, um, that when you were doing Aladdin saying he was encouraging you to try to think outside the box. Is that so? Very much so, uh, because I knew they were a rock band. I never thought of using my classical techniques, my jazz techniques, my avant-garde techniques. It was the last thing I thought of. So when the band was playing, I just played simple blues things. And he said, no, that's too commonplace. And as I tell the story, uh, I then played a Latin solo because I had played with Latin bands in mm -hmm. the Capitol Mountains. I played opposite Eddie Paul Mary and Larry Hollow, people that were great Latin musicians. And in Latin music, they sort of play things like. So I did one of those things. <laughs> and he said, that's great. But. Didn't you, he said to me, these were exact words, didn't you tell me you played on the avant-garde scene in New York that you played crazy jazz and improvise and free music? I said, yeah, but that's why I'm not working Saturday night. <laughs> but he said, he said, these were his exact words. He said, leave that to me. <laughs> so I played a one-take Aladdin saying with all that crazy stuff that people know to this day. And... I never heard it, I don't think, for 15 years. It was just, to me, it was a session. Wow. Wow. Absolutely crazy. Yeah. Um, and so in between this, your time with, with David, you're doing this, you've composed uh, for film, uh, for television. Um, you've okay now wait i also did you're doing you've done music for therapeutic purposes as well is this true i wrote a healing suite i worked with a brain surgeon i wrote so now how did this happen something i've been working on for about 25 years uh what people don't fully understand is when you go out with someone like david bowie or you two or smashing pumpkins in my case or something like that what what happens is um, you 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 um, you might be out for three months or four months or but then you're not working for six more months. So then you have to do other projects. Right. Uh, artists sometimes they go out for two weeks or four weeks, or we can have a long tour for a year. But then you might not be with that band for three more years. So right. in all that time. 
I do all these other projects. <laughs> One of the craziest projects I did was the Liberace TV movie in 19, I think, 88 or something. The first movie on ABC in Liberace's life. So I spent a lot of time learning his music. So I did that, you know. Then wow. I, then I did the movie Stigmata with Billy Corgan that came out with Patricia Arquette. And, you know, so, and then I played jazz with Freddie Hubbard and this one and that one. So I've had a very eclectic life. And then I would tour around the world where I was doing master classes, teaching music, but I'd always play right. uh, for the students because I like to do both. I like to explain things. And then I like to show some people learn by listening and hearing and they feel the emotion and they don't want to hear words and other people don't get all the music, but when you explain it. So this way I cover both bases. Wow. And so how did this, this healing, this music healing come about? Was there, was there, was that, did that personally touch you somehow? Did you? Well, I, was a pre, I was a pre-med student uh, in college. <laughs> I didn't know I was wow. going to do music. So, um, so I always, let's put it this way. Music always healed me, but we didn't mm. use that word 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. It was like right. music, it's a night out, it's entertainment, it's a distraction, it, maybe it calms you down, but we never said music heals. But the truth mm. of the matter is whatever music you love, so it could be a punk band or it could be Mozart or it could be, Oscar Peterson or Bill Evans, or it could be Bowie, whatever it is that you resonate with and love on a certain level, emotionally or spiritually, it's healing you. Why do you think uh, everybody's walking around with their little AirPods and, you know, everybody loves music. It's, it's, it's one of the only things that you could almost escape politics and absolutely crap and people just love music, but it has to be the music that they love. And then if there's a dispute, I like this band and that, that's healthy and it's fun. But I realized the healing power of music, but I started to put specific intention on it. And I wrote 30 pieces and we surveyed it on a hundred patients. So they chose their favorite 12 pieces that was gonna be the healing suite that I was gonna orchestrate it was a full orchestra, a children's choir, a jazz band, a singer. And we had a debut of it about eight years ago. And it's, it was beautiful. And then I wrote some music for children with autism. My grandson has autism, so I was interested in that. And uh, so what happens to me is I get bored if I do too much jazz, too much rock, too much classical. So I'm always looking for something interesting. If I teach too much, I get bored. If I'm doing the healing music too long, but I was able to put in two years to that of time. And that, that was very rewarding, you know? So I've so done- Tell me, Mike, how, how, how do you know this is healing? Me what constitutes healing music when you're writing, when you're, when you're composing it? the senior thing is you have to have that intention. Hmm. So if you have the intention when you're writing a piece to show you're rebellious, that will come across. If you have the intention when you're writing a piece of music to calm the audience, if you have the intention when you're playing a piece of music or writing it to dazzle them with virtuosity, that happens. If you have the intention 
to heal. There's three ways you can heal physically, uh, emotionally, and spiritually. Physically, it's, it's, it's you, if you're healing, if the music is healing you physically, you, you're lucky, you know, and that's, it's a freak and that's not what normally happens, but it's calming for someone who's physically sick. I just finished a, a, an album for cancer patients of wow. healing music with some songs and a few Bowie songs. It wasn't only what you think of as healing music. It was music that I think people would enjoy. But mentally and emotionally, it certainly helps. And the most important thing is spiritually. And also when a person is dying and, and, and moving on, it's nice to listen to music. That way I was talking to a singer who her grandmother only spoke Spanish and she loved the David Bowie song where I played the piano called Lady Grinning Soul. You know that one? <laughs> so, so the grandmother asked her granddaughter, who's a singer, can you play Lady Grinning Soul on a loop all day long till I die? And that's what happened. Wow. Wow. Um, my father was in a coma before he, and I know you're going to do some music, I believe, for Alzheimer's. Is that something you're working on? The Alzheimer's music, I, I, I don't, I can't write music for it because those patients, what they like are songs from their childhood. Yes. So they know already. So I've been around those people. And if you play like a Gershwin song, if they were born in the 20s or 30s or 40s, they're, they're happy with that. Or so I've known people now that are different age. So a Beatles song from them from the 60s. Right. Bring it for them, you know, or whatever. So um, I, I, I can't find a way in to write an Alzheimer's piece of music. But I could, if I'm around those people, I'll ask them what they like. And if I know the song, I'll play something from the old days. But um, autism, yes. Uh, I wrote a tango for a lady who had Parkinson's and she danced it on stage with her husband. At the house, everyone was just hysterically crying. It was one of those. Oh my God. You know? That's so true. I, I, that's so true about the Alzheimer's. My father was in a coma and yet I was playing all those standards that he sang in the Catskills and he was tapping his foot in, and moving his hands and very aware of the music yeah yeah so, very aware of the you music. Know, so I, i'm just let's say codifying or tapping into something that everyone intuitively knows and then i spent a lot of time and of course we asked the patients which ones they like some of the patients said that piece makes me anxious so i took it out of the uh my piece so, okay, Mike, we don't have a lot of time. We only have a few minutes left, but I wanted to ask you about a Bowie celebration. What, what inspired you to start that? I saw it um, a couple of years ago before the pandemic. It was so thrilling. And you guys are not playing, it, it's not like a, what did they call it, a tribute because you guys were the band. So what inspired you to start that up and keep that moving? You know, I had no plans on doing that because when David was alive, I must have been asked to do 30 tribute bands. And why would I do a tribute band if I'm playing with the real guy, right? Right. But when he passed, uh, there was someone who put a band together and they asked me to play with them, but that person hadn't worked with Bowie. Mm. And the alumni musicians were sort of resentful, so they wanted me to take over. So I, it just sort of fell into my lap and I took over and I 
toured it for about four years up into COVID. And then the last two years, I've streamed it uh, with many great artists from Billy Corbin to Trent Reznor to Andrew Day, on and on. Jules uh, Galley uh, did my show not that long ago. I know Jules just did one of your latest shows, right? I, he, one, he sang in Pasadena, I think, before COVID, you know. So, so it's one of those things where it fell into my lap in the same way that Bowie gig fell into my lap. I mean, if I don't know the guy and I ended up with him all those years, it turns out I played the most shows of anyone over 600 and they keep releasing albums. So now I'm up to 25, 30 albums. Unbelievable. But you got to understand. I was only asked to do eight weeks in 1972. So, okay. So how did that first extension happen? You were only given eight weeks. Then what happened? David said, you want to continue. Mm -hmm. And so that kept being the thing? He kept saying... Well, what, ha what happened is I made a decision at that point in time. I'd like to do two years with him. That seemed like a long time mm -hmm. in my 20s, you know. And I played with him to two years to the date. And then I didn't see him for 18 years. And then I rejoined for Black Tie, White Noise. And then I did all those albums after Boot of Suburbia Outside reality you know on and on and and earthling so i realized how much i missed being with him but it mm -hmm. took all those years and for me to recognize it was my decision who only wanted to be there two years but i forgot you know you make decisions and then you forget you make the decision <laughs> why doesn't it wasn't he calling me well i'm going to shut it down you know because at that time from eight weeks to two years seemed like a lot and I did five albums in that period of time. Young Americans, Pinups, Diamond Dogs, Aladdin Sane, you know, uh, a few other ones, live, the Ziggy movie and all that stuff, you know. All right. I have so many more questions, but I'm, I'm looking at the time. I know I have a hard end with you that I've got to honor, but I want, please play a little um, of the space oddity that you mentioned you would play from Variations of Bowie before you go. Yeah, I do a new version, a new variation. <laughs> a new variation, even better.
thank you so much, Mike, for uh, for doing this, for doing that. Um, that was beautiful. You brought a tear. Um, I miss him, and um, he lives on through you and the work that you're doing. Well, thank, thank you. you for having me. Nice to share. You know so much about him, so it's very easy to talk to you about it because we share the, that love for him as an artist. You know. Absolutely, and you are a magnificent artist, and um, I look forward to more you, and hopefully um, you'll come back and talk some more when you have some more time, and uh, thanks so much for doing this, Mike. It was lovely to meet you after all these years in your presence 47 years ago. Crazy, crazy. It's frightening that you were at that show. You must have been <laughs> one year old. You were one year old or something. Uh, yeah, right? exactly. I was one year old. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. Thanks so much, Mike.